Women cannot have authority over men, but they can hurt, they can hate church committees, or they can hate the Sunday school, or they can hate the refreshment committee, or they can be the boss of the hospitality ministry. When there is a tough missions ground overseas, we send women. I got this from uh, Wayne and Miriam, uh, data from WAC, Worldwide Evangelization Crusade, a very big uh, and old missions agency. Overall, in WAC, 58%, more than half, of uh, WAC missionaries are women. But of those who are singles, women outnumber men 6.7 to 1. For every one single man missionary, there are 6.7 women missionaries who are single. The rest are are married. So men cannot live without women. (laughs) Women missionaries can do it alone. So I have to say, like the common phrase goes, Houston, we have a problem. We have a problem of logic and inconsistency And may I also add, we might have a problem of hypocrisy. Fundamentally, it is a problem of tradition versus theology. And I think tradition has overtaken proper theology. That's why we get ourselves into a mess of of inconsistencies. This is the former vice president of the USA, he lived till he was uh, lived till 1996, and he said these things about women. He said three things have have been difficult to tame: the oceans, fools, and women. We may soon be able to tame the oceans. Fools and women will take a little longer. This is coming from a 20th century man. Another president or, or former president of Poland, Lech Wałęsa, he said women are to have fun with. In politics, I prefer not to see a woman. Instead of getting worked up, they should stay as they are, like flowers. I want to introduce this book to you. It's called Why Not Women, written by Lauren Cunningham, uh, the founder of YWAM, Youth with a Mission, and an associate of his called David Joel Hamilton. And they dedicated, the both of them dedicated this book this way. We dedicate this book to our daughters and granddaughters. May they never experience limits on their God-given destinies. And being the founder of YWAM, he would have come across many, many women missionaries, long and short term. But why would modern men like Spiro Agnew and Lech Walensa say what they said about women. We really need to understand the times. Like the Bible says, let's be like men of Issachar who understand the times and know which way to go. We need to understand the times and how these attitudes came to be. You know, as far back as recorded history goes, I believe Satan is out to marginalize half the human race concerning the church, just like his trying very hard to sissify the other half of the human race concerning the church. In ancient Greece, you might have heard of Homer, one of the early, early poets who lived 800 years before Christ. He said women were the cause of all conflict and suffering. 
Women were the source of all conflict and suffering. And among the Greek pantheon of gods, Zeus was the most powerful god. He was like Father God. And Zeus was himself a wife beater. He battered his wives. He was unfaithful. He had children with seven other goddesses. And that was the kind of cultural and philosophical background of the West. Later, there was this The Theogony, written by this guy Hesiod. He lived in the 7th century, 600-something BC. And he said that Zeus made an evil thing, a woman called Pandora, from where comes the, the word Pandora's box, as in all kinds of bad things come out. Pandora was a beautiful evil, not to be withstood by men. From her is a race of women, the deadly race, who lived among mortal men to their great trouble. So women are always troublemakers, evil. Further down the centuries, we come to Plato. Plato, who lived in the 400-something BC, or 348 to 428, 400 years before Christ. He said, if we spend our lives in wrongdoing and in cowardice, wrongdoing, I guess, is sin. If we sin, if we spend our lives in wrongdoing and cowardice, afterwards, Zeus, the Father God, will send us back to this life as women. So all women here were because they were sinners in the previous life. Further down, Aristotle, disciple of Plato, he says, the female is a monstrosity, a deformed male. The female sex has a more evil disposition than the male. And that's why in the Greek and Roman world, homosexuality was rampant because women were so ugh, evil. So they might as well have sex with men. That's why they have sex with young boys, pederasty. And it says that a woman is actually an infertile male because she lacks the power to concord semen or sperm, which carries life. And the woman is, uh, the, the, the semen is the seed and the woman is the soil which nurtures the seed. So they're just like soil. And, and therefore, in those days, there were laws to promote prostitution. There were civil servants, and they are called sexual civil servants. They offer sex. It's legal. And they shut up this woman in dark, squalid homes, and they were never allowed to get out. This woman, these sexual civil servants, were properties of husbands or fathers, or properties of of. Uh, uh, whatever, pimps. And Jesus entered such a world, the Roman world, which was only slightly better than Greece, but still, women were regarded as evil, they were regarded as possessions like soil. And Roman law even had to promulgate certain laws in order to keep the human race alive because women were such so troublesome and so unwanted and unvalued. There is a Roman law that says that at least one daughter must be kept alive in each family because they started killing all, all the women uh, when they were born. And if you look at the burial records, there were twice as many females, babies, who were killed as they were males. And that was the society that Jesus entered. What about the rabbinic world, the Judaistic world? Okay, there's a lot here. I just want to read out to you several quotations from the rabbis. It says, Compared to Adam, Eve was like a monkey. 
And it says, Woe to him who has female children. A daughter is like a trap for a father. When she is small, he fears she might be seduced. When she is a maiden, that she might become promiscuous. When she matures, that she might not marry. When she marries, that she might not produce children. When she grows old, that she would practice witchcraft. Every single thing is negative. And another one says, compare a wife to a piece of meat. He says a man may do whatever he pleases with his wife. Meat, which comes from the slaughterhouse, may be eaten, salted, or roasted, or cooked, or seized. It's a piece of meat. And this is in the next one, uh, Sirach chapter 42, verse 12 to verse 14. It's actually found in the Apocrypha, you know, the, the, the Bibles that the Roman Catholics use as a separate portion. It says, Better is the wickedness of a man than a woman who does good. And it is a woman who brings shame and disgrace. So a wicked man is even better than a woman who does good. That's why we Protestants, we do not recognize this book of Sirach and some of the Apocrypha as uh, being, uh, uh, that, that should be in the Bible. And then in the Mishnah, which is the oral traditions of the Jews, it says, talk not much with womankind. He that talks much with womankind brings evil upon himself and neglects the study of the law and at last will inherit hell. And then there is this tabaraka, which uh, uh, a religious Jew will repeat every morning. He says this. Every morning, okay, the man will say this. Blessed be he who did not make me a Gentile. Blessed be God who did not make me a woman. Blessed be he who did not make me an uneducated man or a slave. And you repeat this morning after morning after morning. Thanking God that you're not a woman. And women are really at the bottom of the food chain. Because a slave can purchase his freedom or can be granted his freedom. A Gentile could convert to Judaism and worship God. You, an undereducated person could always get an education, but you cannot stop being a woman. You're stuck. But what is Jesus' view of woman? You know that Jesus bypassed men in the three most important phases of his life? He came through a woman, Mary, in his birth. So he's got Mary's DNA but he doesn't have Joseph's DNA. He was anointed by two women before he went to the cross to prepare him for his death. He appeared to women first at the resurrection and they're the first to, to be commanded to go and tell people that he was alive. God created woman as a beautiful gift to man to complete the man and to make it very good. It was not good for the man to be alone. And the woman was given to man to make it very good. And God saw that it was very good. Man and woman were in the garden as friends and lovers. Both man and woman were created in his image. Male and female created them he. Woman was not created to serve man, but woman was created to serve with man. Let them rule. He doesn't say let Adam rule and Eve serve man. And Jesus re-emphasized this in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4. He says, haven't you read that at the beginning, the Creator made them male and female? And said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. He emphasized the distinctiveness, yes, of man and woman. But both made in God's image, both very good. You know, most cultures, uh, and also the Chinese culture, 
the wife will leave her home and be joined to the husband and the evil mother-in-law. Or they will live uh, independent uh, uh, place elsewhere. But the biblical principle is, doesn't say that, it just says, man, a man shall leave his father and his mother and establish a home with his wife. And then Luke chapter 13, verse 16 there was this woman with a spinal problem. She was bent over. And Jesus said, Then should not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has kept bound for 18 years, be set free on the Sabbath day from what bound her? Jesus used this term, daughter of Abraham, which nobody else uses. You always say you're a son of Abraham, but it's never used for a woman because they are not equal to men. And that day, I think, when this woman who was bent down and crouching for 18 years, when Jesus healed her physical back and she was able to straighten up, I think Jesus healed more than her back. Jesus restored her dignity as a person, daughter of Abraham, equal to any man in any temple, in any synagogue, valued by God. John chapter 11, verse 27, your first Matthew 16, 16, you know when, when Jesus asked, so who do you say I am? And Simon Peter came up and said, you are the Christ, son of the living God. And Jesus said, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but by my Father in heaven. And that was like high praise. God revealing this to Peter. But Martha had this. John chapter 11, Martha said this, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who was to come into the world. Practically similar. Both Martha and Peter had God revealed this truth to them. And then in Luke chapter 11, verse 24, uh, uh, a woman in the crowd called out to Jesus, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. You see, it reflects the tradition that a woman receives blessing through the man, not directly from God. A woman receives blessing because she has given birth to a son. And therefore, she said, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nurse too. And Jesus replied in verse 28, chapter 11 of Luke, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. Woman, you have a direct link to God. You don't have to go through your sons or your husbands or your fathers. You go directly to God. You obey God and you are blessed. That was Jesus' message to this woman who cried out. What about Paul's teaching on women? Ephesians 5 is in the context of mutual submission. Verse 21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. So men submit to woman, woman submit to man. Husband to wife, wife to man. And in verse 33, it says, However, each of you also must love his wife as he loves himself, and a wife must respect her husband. Now, there is something very interesting in, in Greek, in the tenses. They have all kinds of of tenses. There is this imperative tense. The husband must love the wife. It is imperative. It's a command. And the wife must respect her husband. It's a subjunctive tense. It is a dependent clause. So, actually, this verse says, love your wife in order that she might respect you. And we, when we look at this verse, it says, wife, you submit to me first. Huh? Then maybe I'll love you. It's not that way. It's not that way at all. Love your wife in order that she might respect you or submit to you. And of course, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, 
is very, very clearly written, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Your value doesn't depend on your race, whether you are light-skinned or dark-skinned. Your value doesn't depend on that. It doesn't depend on your economic status, whether you're a businessman or you're a servant, a domestic helper, or whatever. And it certainly does not depend on gender, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So, that's a long introduction. I want to tackle Bible study, okay? Today, three verses that has troubled many people, even myself, until I do a closer Bible study. These are the three verses. Firstly, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3 says, Now I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. What does this mean? Does it mean that man is always above the woman? Second verse I want to tackle is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34. It says, Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. Oh my, this is really very definitive. That means all you women got to shut up. And the third one, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. So, open up your Bibles. We're going to be flipping and, and, and looking. I, I admit there is a lot of controversy uh, over this Verses. Okay, I want to present to you an alternate view uh, uh, from what you may have uh, come across or maybe used to. And I want to examine the context in which these verses were written and how God actually deals with the gender issue, with the background of the Roman world, the Greek world. Unfortunately, I don't read Chinese too well, otherwise I would want to do some research on how the Chinese, ancient Chinese treats women. It's you know, when Adam and Eve fell, everything uh, uh, was, was messed up. But you look at it in the context of God creating male and female in His image. You look at these verses in the context of Jesus, how Jesus treated women. Okay, first one. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. When we read this verse, <coughs> I think we assume immediately that women must be subordinate to men because man is the head of women. Should we? Let's look at it carefully. In the Bible, there are often different kinds of structure in which uh, you can look at a context. And chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians has what is called an ABAB structure. It's like this. There comes the introduction. Okay, so let's read 1 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm going to read uh, practically the whole verse. The introduction is this. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. And I praise you for remembering me, Paul, in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. The introduction is about following Christ. And then the ABAB starts. A principle, then a practice. A principle, then a practice. So the principle is this, from verse 3. I want you to realize that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. That is a principle. What is headship? We'll get into that. What does it exactly mean when you say head? The head of a man, the head of a woman, and the head of Christ. And then comes the practice. The practice talks about hair and your head fashion. Okay? It says, Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. 
And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head. It is just as though her head was shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. These are practices linked to a principle. We'll get into that later. And then comes another principle, ABAB, remember? So this is A again, principle. And this principle is about the interdependence of man and woman from verse 8 to 12. It says, For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. So there is a principle here, the interdependence of man and woman. And then now comes the practice from verse uh, 13 and 14. It says, judge for yourselves. Judge. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him. So the practice is judge. All of us are given mental faculties. Judge. And it's about hair, about hat. Again, what is acceptable in that culture or context and what is not acceptable? Are you like a man becoming like woman or woman becoming like man or looking like a man? Judge for yourselves. And then comes the conclusion, verse 16. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. This is about the role of gender in following Christ. Remember, the first introduction was to follow Christ. And the conclusion is, okay, man, woman, how do we follow Christ? Well, you know that language is alive. It changes, it morphs. The same word has different meanings under different contexts and in different time periods. Okay, a, a very simple example is the word gay. Right, years ago, 95% of the time when you say gay, it means just happy. Happy, in fact, not even 95%. 100% of the time, it means happy or cheerful, exclusively. Today, if you use the word gay, I think 95% of the time, it refers to homosexuality. And maybe 5% of people would use the word gay as being cheerful. Now, the word head <coughs> in Greek, kafale, sounds like kapala, <laughs> the head. The Hebrew word is called rush. And it means different things in different contexts. If you look at the Septuagint, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament, okay, you take that Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament and you look for the word rosh. When that word in Hebrew Old Testament is translated into Greek kephale, you will find that when it refers to a physical head, it is translated as kephale 95% of the time. When it is used in the context of being a ruler or leader or authority, it is only translated 5% of the time as kafale. So the context of this passage, I believe, is not about authority or ruler or leader because it's only 
95% of the time is simply translated as a physical thing. You're the head, there is a tail. There is a head, waters, from where the, the mountains flow, the stream into the sea, head waters, and then uh, uh, is, is the source or, or the origin. So remember, 95% of the time when you see the word head or kafele in Greek, it refers to a physical phenomenon. The head, the source from where you flow. So now it says in verse 3, now I want you to realize that the head, the kafale, remember 95% of the time talks about the physical head. Of every man is Christ, and the head of woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. So there are three pairs there. Man, Christ. Woman, man. Christ, God. Three pairs. And I believe the way to interpret this is when it refers to the pair of man and Christ, it simply says that God created the first Adam, meaning man. That's what it means, actually, man, Adam. Christ was God, the second Adam. And therefore, the source of man is Christ. From Christ came man, the source. The second pair between a woman and man, God created Eve, woman, from the man, Adam. The source of woman, Eve, is man, Adam. Because man was created first. He was a source. Then he was a head. Then came the woman. The third pair, Christ and God. And finally, God sent his son, Jesus, to be born of a woman to redeem mankind. So Christ came from God, the source. So think about it this way. Not, don't think about it as authority or submission. Think about it as the source or the origin. And the early church fathers, Cyril of Alexandria, who lived in 5th century AD, that means the 400 uh, AD or, or so, says that, thus we say that the kafale of every man is Christ because Christ was made, a man was made through him and brought forth to birth. And the kafale of woman is man because she was taken from man's flesh and has him as her source. Likewise, the kafale of Christ is God because he is from him according to nature. So even in the 400 uh, AD, they were thinking like this already. Not thinking in terms of ruler or submission, but thinking of source and origin. And in the 3rd century uh, AD, uh, Athanasius, again one of the early church fathers, commented on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. It says, That head must be understood as source rather than as boss. Okay, he didn't use the word boss. Lest one arrive at a faulty understanding the Trinity, because Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all are co-equal. Man, woman, Christ, God are in somewhat that same kind of relationship. So, there are two possibilities then, right? You can interpret it this way. Now, I want you to realize 1 Corinthians eleven three. I want you to realize that the authority, the leader of every man is Christ. The authority, the leader of woman is man. The authority, the leader of Christ is God. Or, you can think about it this way. Now, I want you to realize that the source or the origin of every man is Christ. That the source of our origin of a woman is the man. And that the source or origin of Christ is God. And I think the second one works better. That it head refers to origin and source and not authority or subordination. And then we have this very interesting verse. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 10. For this reason... And because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. 
Unfortunately, it is a wrong translation. The word sign of, I think you can see it in yellow. Uh, in another translation, New American Standard Version, it says a symbol of authority. Those are not the Greek words found there. The word is simply exousia. It just means authority or power. It just means power. And I believe the King James Version is better in this case. For this cause, or the woman to have power on her head or over her head because of the angels. So the woman has the power or the right to wear whatever she wants to wear on her head. Just as a man has the power or the right to decide whatever he wants to wear on his head. Submission was never used in this passage. In fact, the authority is only used once in, uh, in Corinthians uh, a passage, and it means this exousia, power. A woman has the same power as man over what to wear on her head. Okay. Second one, because of the angels. What on earth does this mean? Well, one possibility is this. If you look at how angels were referred to in the, in the Bible, angels have no gender distinctions. Remember, in Matthew chapter, chapter 22, verse 30, Jesus says, at the, at the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. So you don't get married in heaven, right? And, and this verse sort of suggests that gender is simply not an issue among, among angels. So, because of the angels, don't worry about male, female. The second clue we might have <coughs> referring to angels is the Bible tells us that we will judge angels. 1 Corinthians chapter, three verse, uh, chapter 6, verse 3. Do you not know that we will judge angels how much more the things on, of this life? If you're going to be judging angels, hey, better make some decisions about what to wear on your hair, on your head. Judge. Be a judge. Discern. What is right to wear on your head, whether you should have long hair, short hair, wear a veil, wear a cap, or whatever. Be the judge of that. That could be what it means because of the angels. And you've got to ask, why is Paul of all the important uh, uh, spiritual things to talk about, why is he so concerned about fashion, about the length of hair, about wearing a veil, about something to cover the head? It's very difficult. 1 Corinthians was written in response to another letter, which we don't have. So we are listening to one side of a telephone conversation. Huh? Sometimes you are sitting in the toilet and the next door guy is talking. You don't know what on earth he's talking because you're listening to one side. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 6 says this, If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off and... If it is a disgrace for a woman to have a haircut or shave, she should cover her head. You know, whenever we reach or we see difficulties in practices that we don't understand in the Bible, we always go back to first principles. First principles. What is the principle? The principle is neither Jew nor Greek. The principle, yes, there is a source and, and it's not about authority. What does this suggest? It simply says this. If it is not a, a disgrace, then it doesn't apply. Judge for yourselves. Is it a disgrace for a woman to shave her hair? If it is, then it's a problem. If it is not, it's not a problem. Right? Next month, one of our sisters have told me that she's going to shave her head bald. Why? Because she wants to participate and help in a, a cancer, uh, cancer society thing. 
Is it a problem? No, I say encourage. But there is this verse, no problem. The principle is that. The principle is serve people. The principle is Sabbath was made for man. The principle is uh, do good. The principle is not cannot shave. The principle is, is not you, you must always have your head covered uh, in church if you're a woman. Right? You understand that? So go back to first principles. The principle is a man must look like a man and a woman must look like a woman. Okay? That is the principle. And that's why Paul had all these verses uh, talking about, about these things. So judge for yourselves. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 13. Judge for yourself. Paul says, I give you the freedom and the right and you have the mental faculties to make a judgment. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? In those days, yes. In today, no. So make a judgment and live with it. What's the issue? That's the way I think we can interpret this. It's a practice. Go back to first principles. And so, at the end of it, I think Paul can say it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. So Paul says, whether you, you eat or drink, and, and let me add to Scripture. I know <laughs> at great peril I do this. Huh? I, I, let, let's say we add this. Whether you eat or drink, or whether you have short hair or long hair, or wear a hat or wear a veil, or whatever you do, you do it all for the glory of God. You get it? I think that's how it works. <coughs> and then, the last verse here, verse uh, uh, 16. The, how it concludes. Oops, let me go back. Verse 16, if anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. We're not talking about practices. We're talking about the principle. Where the introduction was, now there's a conclusion. The introduction that was about following Christ. How a man follow Christ, how a woman follow Christ, was talking about gender in public ministry, ministering as co-workers. Before that, we were talking about praying and prophesying, and Paul encourages them to pray and to prophesy. And then he says, there should be no contention about these things. In fact, there is only one place in Corinthians that talks about authority. And that is in 1 Corinthians 6, where it says, a man should have authority over his wife's body. That means if you want to have sex. And then a woman should have authority over the man's body. 1 Corinthians 6, go and read it. It's very interesting. Now, the second troublesome verse is 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but must be in submission as the law says. Okay, this is one verse. But look at the full counsel of God. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle Peter, expected and encouraged both men and women to minister in public. In Acts chapter 2, verse 17, it repeats what was way back in the Old Testament in Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my Spirit on all people. And as though people do not understand what all people mean, he says, your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. And as though people don't understand what it means, say, even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days and they will prophesy. Prophesying is a very public ministry. It's not about keeping silent. And Paul concludes in 1 Corinthians 14 verse 39. He says, therefore, my brothers... 
my brethren actually, which includes men and women, be eager to, be eager to prophesy for this public ministry. Do not forbid speaking in tongues. Again, just now we talked about A, B, A, B. Now we talk about A, B, C, C, B, A. Okay? This is what is called a chiasm that is very often used in the Bible. You have a principle, then you talk about point A, 1, B1, C1, and then it mirrors itself back to CD, and then D back to C, back to B, back to A. Okay, I'll show you. One example is uh, of a chiastic, a chiastic structure is Matthew chapter 23, verse 12. It's a very, very simple one, right? Just one verse. Whoever exalts himself is A, will be humbled B. Whoever humbles himself is a B, will be exalted back to A. Okay, understand? It's kind of like a mirror structure. Now we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 14. First of all, the principle is introduced and Paul corrects the chaos that was in the Corinthian church. And I'm going to be reading uh, practically uh, all the verses here. Verse 26, What then shall we say, brothers? When you come together, everyone has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue or an interpretation. All of these must be done for the strengthening of the church. Okay, Not chaotic, to strengthen the church. That is the principle. And then A1, concerning, oops, A1, concerning those who speak in tongues, verse 27 and 28. If anyone speaks in a tongue, two or at most three should speak one at a time. Someone must interpret. If there is no interpreter, the speaker should keep quiet, keep silent in the church and should speak to himself and God. B now addresses prophets Verse 29 to 32. Two or three prophets should speak, and the others should weigh carefully what is said. In, and if a revelation <coughs> comes to someone who is sitting down, the first should stop. You can all prophesy in turn, so that everyone may be instructed and encouraged. The spirits of prophets are subject to the control of prophets. Okay? Next, women. Verse 34. Women should remain silent in the churches. They are not allowed to speak, but, but must be in submission, as the law says. If they want to inquire about something... They should ask their own husbands at home. Then the reverse image, C2, about woman again. For it is disgraceful for a woman to speak in the church. Did the word of God originate with you, or are you the only people it has reached? If anybody thinks he is a prophet or spiritually gifted, let him acknowledge that what I am writing to you is the Lord's command. If he ignores it, he himself will be ignored. Then B2, the reverse of uh, the mirror image, prophets. Uh, chapter 14, verse 39, the first part. Therefore, my brothers, be eager to prophesy. And then back to those speaking in tongues in A2. Those speaking in tongues do not forbid speaking in tongues. And finally, reaffirm the principle again, verse 40. But everything should be done in a fitting and orderly way. So the main idea is about God. And God is a God of order. And all who participate in Christian worship must do it in an orderly way edifying, strengthening way. The emphasis wasn't on woman. The emphasis wasn't on silence, but on good order. If you look particularly at the word silence, I entitled this slide, Let's Be Sound on Silence. There are three verses that use this word, be silent, shut up. Okay? The Greek word is sigao, be silent. One is for those who speak in tongues, shut up, shut up. If you cannot speak in one at a time and in good and orderly manner, shut up. Number two, uh, uh, that is uh, verse 28. Then it refers to the prophets. Say, shut up. 
If it is not for strengthening and encouragement, shut up, keep silent. You should stop. Same Greek word, sigao, verse 30. And then comes verse 34. For the woman, shut up, keep silent. You don't understand anything? Go back and ask your husband. I'll, I'll explain that uh, later on. So, when we look at these three shut up, we focus on the woman. Right? Woman shut up. But what about the prophets? What about those who speak in tongues indiscriminately? We like forgotten about that. So we're not very sound. Okay? That's why I say we've got to be sound on silence. It refers to all three categories. And then it's um, 1 Corinthians 14, 34, the verse we are considering. Oh dear, I don't think of time. Um, must be in submission as the law says. Okay, that's very troublesome again. Let me try to interpret this. As the law says, it could refer to the church, the law, as in the congregation of the saints. For example, that in, in, in many churches, when they pra- practice prophecies, they will, will submit it to the church leaders. Uh, a pastor, I've got this word, I believe the Lord wants for the whole congregation. Can you check it out with me? Let's pray together before I release the word. And sometimes the pastor will say yes. Sometimes the pastor in this discernment as the leader of the church will say no. So it could refer the law as to the law of the leaders of the church. Or it could refer to themselves. Because in verse 32, it says the spirit of the prophets are subject to the control of the prophets. It's not like, oh, I'm in a trance and God told me to say this. I cannot not say this. If I don't say this, uh, I, I will collapse. It's not that way. You are in control of your tongues and you are in control of prophecy. It is not like a trance-like state. And then it says, ask your husbands. What it means here is that in, the whole, in those days, the woman had absolutely no right. They were not included in Bible study classes. They are absolutely forbidden to go to BSF and precepts. They have nothing. They stay in home. They are pregnant and they look after the children. And here it says, Jesus was encouraging and Paul was encouraging the, the woman to learn, to participate. And therefore, husbands, you must bring your wife up to speed. If you go to BSF or you've learned from the Bible, you must teach your wife. Bring them up to speed. If Adam had taught Eve properly about God's commandments, then there may not have been that uh, Eve being, being deceived or being tempted, right? It was like that. Go and ask your husband because they are the one who knows. They have this responsibility to teach. Okay, third one. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. Does it really mean that? That a woman has no authority to teach a man anything, anywhere, at any time? Is this an absolute command? Or is it a statement made in a specific context of time and space, location? In the light of Jesus' restoration of the value and dignity of woman, in the light of other scriptures which actually encourage a woman to, to participate and to teach, we've got to look at it in that light. Okay? Again, this is the chiasm part. Huh? Principle, example one, man, example two, then we talk about the, the chiasm, talks about plural woman, singular woman, plural woman. Okay, let's go into that quickly. What is the principle? I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. Uh, uh, let's, is it here? Oh, no. Okay. Some versions say for, for all men, okay? I want to make sure that you understand that this is the word, Greek word anthropos. Huh? I will use the word anthropos. It means humanity, all men. 
when it talks about male gender, it's called Anna, A-N-E-R. I'll refer to that, okay? First of all, I urge that request prayers and thanksgiving be made for anthropos, all humanity, for kings and those in authority, that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all men, anthropos, humanity, to be safe and to come to a knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and all men, anthropos, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in his proper time. And for this purpose, I was appointed a herald, apostle. I am telling the truth. I am not lying. and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. So that is the, the principle. Then now we have an example of a man, of men. 1 Timothy 2.8, I want men, I want Anna, I want the males everywhere to lift up holy hands in prayer without anger or disputing. And then the example of the woman. And this is plural woman, okay, plural woman. I also want plural woman, all women, to dress modestly with decency and propriety, not with braided hair or gold or pearl or expensive clothes, but with good deeds appropriate for all women who profess to worship God. There is a word, I also want woman, also translated as likewise. So that means if men were to pray in holiness and lifting up men without anger, then in the same way, in, in also woman, you should uh, pray. You should pray with decency and propriety. But what about the dressing? Again, Paul is going off in the hair and head and now about dressing even. In those days, ostentation was a mark of promiscuity. The more ostentatious you are, the more you look like a prostitute. Okay? Today, I don't know. Okay? Today, it might be like very low-cut blouses or, or very short skirts or, or see-through clothing uh, for women. Uh, and then you kind of look like a slut or look like a prostitute. Okay? But, in, in, you know, in the old, 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 old Chinese days, you watch the old Chinese movies, when this button is taken out, it already means you have been raped, right? Or that you are uh, an indecent woman, right? Just like my shirt, like that. One button out. So, context of uh, the days and culture of the days. I do not know what a gigolo looks like, okay? But whatever it is, uh, tight pants or whatever. Then, if it is not proper in that culture, then it is not proper. Christians, we should not wear tight pants. I don't know, okay? I haven't seen a gigolo uh, in real life. So, that's what it means. And then, in this chiasm, after talking about plural woman, now he talks about a singular woman. Okay, again, this is in the Greek. It's singular. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. A woman should learn in quietness and full submission. I do not permit a woman to teach or to have authority over a man. She must be silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was deceived, became a sinner. But women will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith, love, holiness, and propriety. Okay, this is very troublesome. Verse 11 to verse 15a, the plural nouns are all gone. It's about one singular woman. So it suggests that there was one particular woman who was teaching and creating a lot of problems and dressing improperly and creating problems in the church. That's what it suggests. Okay? We can dispute that, but that's what it suggests. And then it comes back from verse 15b in plural woman, as in if they, all women, no longer singular, one woman, all women, if they continue in faith, love, and holiness with propriety. Why do we say this is one woman? Because at that part from verse 11 to 15a, it brings in the example of Eve, who was one woman. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, Paul also refers to this, I know a man 
who went to the third heaven. He was actually referring to himself, one man, but he didn't call out by name. Likewise, he did not call out this woman, uh, this troublesome uh, 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 woman by name. Just says, a woman. I know of a man who went to the third heaven. I know of this woman who was creating all kinds of trouble in the Ephesian church uh, when he was writing uh, 1 Timothy. And Paul wanted to silence this woman. Because she, not because she was a woman, but because she was giving wrong teaching. And, and Eve was de- deceived, referring to one woman, not because Eve was inherently weak as a woman, because Adam did not teach her. And therefore she was deceived. And therefore the forbidding to teach, she was forbidden to teach and therefore to be silent. And then now comes a very troublesome one, safe through childbearing. Whoa. Woman, you are safe through childbearing. No, actually, it is. This childbearing is not a verb, you know, it's not the process of giving birth. It's a noun. Childbearing. And it should be translated as you should be safe through the childbearing. Not your own process of giving birth, but through the childbearing. And I believe this refers to Genesis 3, verse 15, where it says, God, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman, between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel because from Eve and down through the line, a child will be born. He will be the saviour of the world. So we're not saved by the physical process of childbearing, but by the spiritual act of the childbearing of a saviour who came through a human womb. And finally, in the plural, continue in faith love, holiness, and propriety. Okay. These three verses. Oh, actually, there's another one. There's another mirror of chapter uh, 3 of 1 Timothy. Same kind of structure. And, and you can see men deacon, women deacons, and, and all that. And you, you understand how Paul's mind thinks. We don't have time to get into that. So, what do you think about these three verses? <laughs> Thinking about lunch already, I think. Uh, that's a verse I want to share with you. Second Timothy chapter two, verse two. It says, "And the things you have heard me say, we, we've learned it in the church camp, in the presence of, presence of many witnesses, and trust to reliable men." What do you think? Anna or Anthropos? Humanity or male gender? And trust to faithful men. Okay. Is anthropos. Right? We entrust this thing to all men and women so that they can teach the next generation, so that they will be qualified to teach. I think that is very clear. Uh, so it does not forbid women from teaching. And, but there was one particular woman who exercised authority and she was a false teacher and Paul had to silence her. When Jesus talked about authority, I give you authority, all authority has been given to me, and you now go and preach the gospel to all men, humanity. Women preach the gospel, men preach the gospel. When Jesus talked about authority, those who lord it over them, remember? Those who want to have authority must first be a servant. For the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. So let's not be unaware of the devil's scheme. Uh, because some of these verses, through tradition, through wrong interpretation, have, have straight-jacketed our, our sisters. 
you know, I've heard so many times of, of a lady come and say, no, I think my husband should take the lead. When so obviously the lady has leadership potential and she's well-educated, she says, cannot, I cannot serve in church because brethren church, the husband must take the lead. I've had several group leaders come to me and say, I've got to resign already. I think I've already disobeyed a lot long enough. Now my husband should take the lead. And husband is not a leader type. And we're always full of diffidence as women in the Brethren Church. Everybody's got different roles, okay? Some husbands are good leaders, some wives are good leaders, some girls are good leaders, and some men are good leaders, and others are not. But we all have the same value because we're all made in the image of God. So I hope that we can stir each one of us unto love and good deeds through the gifts that God has given to us. Okay, so ladies, I will be approaching some of you to teach and to lead, and I hope you won't have any hang-ups about that, right? Okay, let's uh, not do the closing song. Let's just close in prayer. Let's be praying for our sisters next to us, in front of us, behind us. Let's look upon them with a new light, different light, through the eyes of Jesus, who restored the dignity of half the human race, who gave them the authority, the abilities, the gifts to teach and to lead. And to all of us, to be silent when we are wrong to be silent when we are behaving inappropriately. And lift up, let's lift up our sisters in prayer. And God is pleased with the role that some of our sisters have been pl- playing. And God wants to encourage you and to further love and good deeds. So Lord, I give you thanks for your word, sometimes so difficult, but indeed we have to judge. We need to look We need to have teachers who do the research and write books such as uh, the one that we've looked at, Why Not Woman, who enable us to understand the different structures and how Paul thought and how he presented and how when it is translated now in the English, there are certain problems and we need teaching. So God, I pray that you will raise up teachers in our midst, especially our sisters, and that we can teach. I pray you will raise up good leaders too, cell group leaders, deaconess, uh, even elders, uh, God, who are, are, are ladies, and then we can govern this church, that everything will be done fittingly in good order so that the church of Jesus may march on and win many souls, love many people. So thank you, Lord, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.